This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 15. Episode 27. This is Writing Excuses, Alternate History with Eric Flint. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Howard. I'm Dan. And we have special guest star Eric Flint. Thank you for coming on the podcast with us. You're welcome. And we're also recording live at SpikeCon. So, Eric, you are one of the established masters of alternate history. We're really excited to have you on the podcast to talk about it with us. Um, Just in case there is someone listening who doesn't know what alternate history is, how would you define the subgenre of alternate history? Um, Basically, the author makes some kind of change in real history and then follows what the you know, ramifications of it might be. You can broadly break it into two parts. A lot of alternate history also involves a time travel element where uh, you take somebody in the modern world and put them back in in older times. Um, But then there's a different kind of alternate history, which you might consider pure alternate history, where there's no time travel element at all. The the author just makes a change. in something. It can be something very minor, but something that's going to have a cascading effect. I've written both types, so. Um, so that sounds to me really hard um, because <laughs> I write epic fantasy and no one can tell me I got my history wrong. Um, that I, But it feels like if you, you pick a time that people have studied a lot, say, you know, World War II or something like that, and you say, you know, well, this, this battle changed, and I'm going to explore the ramifications of what happens all the way to the, into the future if that one battle was fought differently. It sounds like you have to do a lot of research and uh, listen to a lot of people grumble that you got it wrong. I uh, make it a point. Uh, I have not and have no intention of ever writing an alternate history set in World War II the Civil War, Napoleonic era, where there are a jillion uh, reenactors and fanatics who will, who will go berserk over every little goddamn jot and tittle. Of, you know, <laughs> now those uniforms only had three buttons. Of, you know, um, well, second, that's your your problem is that. You know, historians, they will let you know when you're wrong, but the reenactors, no, 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 they'll come no. to your house. <laughs> well, and what really drives you nuts is that the issues they're going to give you a hard time about, who the hell cares? I mean, you know, they, they really don't have hardly anything to do with the story. Um, my biggest series, is, the Ring of Fire series, is set in the middle of the Thirty Years' War in Central Europe in the 17th century, and there are in the United States exactly one group of reenactors of the Thirty Years' War, and I made it a point to get on good terms with them a long time ago. Uh, yeah, it is a lot of work. Whenever I'm, uh, at least when I'm starting an alternate history series, it gets easier if you go along, as you go along. But whenever I'm early on in an alternate history book, I have to budget about twice as much time as I do for, for pretty much any other kind of novel. The only other kind of novel I've 
ever done that requires that kind of research is hard as if. Um, and yeah, there are plenty of times when I <coughs> envy dirty, rotten fantasy writers like you because, you know, <coughs> you can just wing it. I mean, you do have to be consistent and care. I mean, there is actually quite a bit of work goes into it, but it's not the kind of, no. you know. You know, I've, mm-hmm. um, most of my career I wrote just in secondary world fantasies that I'd made up. And the first time I even touched um, uh, our world, I made sure to make it post-apocalyptic um, and cities that had suffered enormous uh, disasters that had changed the landscape, the physical landscape. And I still got things wrong and got complaints about, you know, I, I took Chicago and I changed it to steel and I blew up most of it and I created an underground and most of it takes place in the underground and still people be like, you know, that street doesn't actually intersect there. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, ah, man, you'd oh. think that I could change the world enough that I could, uh, but it, uh, it is, it's difficult. How do you, what's your go-to method well, for research? Right. I, I, there are some tricks I use. Uh, when Andrew Dennis and I wrote 1634 to Galileo Fair, which is part of the Ring of Fire series and takes place mostly in Venice, and every single important location except the Piazza di San Marco and the Doge's Palace, which are quite well known and you can visit them, but every other location that figured in the novel, we situated somewhere in Venice that got destroyed later. You know, so Mussolini raised it and put up a railroad station in one case, and I've forgotten everything else. So there's nothing left for anybody to go and prove that we were wrong. And it's far enough back, there's not enough of an historical record. So you're like time travelers trying to hide your tracks by putting your activities (laughs) where something's going to wipe it out. As much as possible. Another thing I will do, I like to use historical characters, if at all possible. but what I try to do is, is one of the major characters during a fire series is a Danish prince, Prince Ulrich. Uh, he, he existed. I mean, he was a real prince of Denmark, but in real history, he was murdered at the age of 22. Very mysterious episode. So he died at the age of 22. Well, prove me wrong as to how he, <laughs> you know, evolved afterwards. So I try to find people that were young, um, you know, that in one way or another, it's hard for somebody to, to, to you know, they can second guess yeah. me, but, but, you know, it's like prove it, you know. Right. So, yeah, there's a lot of that. Um, no matter what, how you slice it, though, you're still a, a lot. It's actually, in terms of writing excuses, the two things I tell people is the biggest, the biggest and most dangerous um, forms of procrastination are research and world building because you can do that forever mm-hmm. and at a certain point you just have to say enough and start writing a book and then yeah a lot of times you'll have to go back and do more research and, and do stuff there's, you know, there's no way around it it's a lot of work it gets easier if it's a big long series the farther you go because the farther you get from the break point um, as, as we call it you know, the more the possibilities open up. Let's go ahead and stop and uh, talk about our book of the week, which is the first book in the Ring of Fire series. Um, Will you tell us a little bit about it? 
Oh, yeah, the premise of the, of the whole Ring of Fire series in the first novel is called 1632. It's a very simple premise. Uh, there's a cosmic accident that's caused by basically irresponsible behavior on the part of a very powerful alien species and uh, who, who enjoy manipulating space-time. And, and uh, what amounts to a fragment of their art hits the Earth and causes a transposition in time and place of a whole town in northern West Virginia in modern times, modern times being the year 2000, which is when I wrote the book. Uh, a town about a six-mile diameter. I mean, the whole physical area is transposed, not just the people. So that this town materializes in the middle of Germany, in an area of Germany called Thuringia, uh, which used to be southern East Germany, in the middle of the Thirty Years' War. They just, boom, they show up, and there they are. And that's the MacGuffin. I mean, that's the premise. That's the only premise. Um, and, you know, I, I, it's a three-page preface. I don't spend, you know, it's really, let's get on with the story. Just take my word for it that this happened, and, uh, yeah, I know it's crazy, but who cares? Um, <laughs> and we'll go from there. And what the whole series is about is how this town of 3,500 modern Americans, the impact that this has on the world in general, particularly Europe, in the middle of what was probably the most destructive war in European history, at least since the time of the collapse of the Roman Empire. Um, and it's also a very fascinating period in history. And, and from there, the series has, has sprawled out all over the place. There are seven novels that I call the main line that sort of run in the center of the series. Followed. They depict the main characters and the main actions that happen, but then there are all kinds of side stories that branch off from there, and some become pretty major storylines in their own right. Uh, I believe we're up to about 20 four novels published by Bain Books. And then in addition, starting about two years ago, we launched our own publishing house, which we call Ring of Fire Press, which we have a booth in the dealer's room if you want to drop by. And we're, we're publishing our own stuff set in the series. And it also has a magazine called the Grantville Gazette that's been in operation professionally for about 12 years. Yeah, so it's done really well. Yeah. If you guys don't know about this whole thing, Go research it because it is one of the most fascinating, um, like emergent storytelling um, cultures in science fiction and fantasy. That these novels started, and the people who loved reading them um, started talking about them and creating forums. And out of that grew um, a magazine which has fiction that is kind of um, members of the community are writing that is all canon about this town. And they know all the people who are in it because it's a somewhat small town um, yeah. and just what they're doing. And they'll be like, we need to get rubber. How do we get rubber? Well, we need to write a story about somebody and going. And, and all of these things, it is really just the, the network around um, yeah. The 1632 books is just fascinating well, to me. And that's a, a thing that I would like to, like to ask, you know, with regard to, to alternate history uh, and the research that needs to be done, how much of that in the last 10 years have you been able to crowdsource? Have you been able to go out to members of the community and I find was, things? I, I was crowdsourcing it right from when I wrote the first book, I... I 
talked to Jim Bain, we set up a special conference in Bain Bar's discussion area devoted to that book. And I said to people, I'm gonna need help writing this because all kinds of, the kind of research I have to do is impossible for one people to do. You know, it's like, what can you do with modern engines? So a lot of it was technical. Um, the basic rule I followed, uh, with one exception, was that I used the real town of Mannington, West Virginia, is the model for the town of Grantville. The only big exception is I moved the power plant, which in the real world exists in another town called Grant Town, about 15 miles away. I moved it because I really needed a power plant. <laughs> um, but that's the only thing I cheated on. Um, so the basic rule, that's been true ever since, is if it's in Mannington, you can put it in Grantville. If it's not in Mannington, you can't. That's the rule. And people spend a ton of time, believe me, researching what is and isn't in, Ma in Mannington. Um, do people in the actual town know about this? Do yeah, they, they we, get tired we have, of yeah, I mean, we <laughs> haven't been out there in quite a while. The first three uh, years now, going back, I don't know, close to 20 years, the fans of the series hold our own annual convention. It's being held here this year. Uh, uh, Westercon's hosting it. Uh, the first five years we held it in West Virginia. We couldn't hold it in Mannington because Mannington doesn't have a motel. Um, and that's how small a town it is. So we held it in a larger town of Fairmont, had a population of about 30,000. Uh, we did that for five years in a row. Uh, but at that point, there'd always be new people coming every year, but about at least two-thirds of the people have gotten to be regulars, and they came up to me and said, you know, Eric, there's only so many times you can visit a town of 3,500 people. I mean, so, uh, <laughs> which is fair enough. So what we started doing after that, Conestoga in Tulsa was the first one that did it. We'll go to a convention and ask them if they're willing to host us. What they get is maybe 50 people showing up who wouldn't otherwise show up. And we do all the organizing and tracks and everything else. And, and, but basically, it means we don't have to organize a convention because right. somebody yeah. else has already done it. So um, kind of getting back to how to write... Yeah. Um, alternate history. I'm actually going to pitch this at Dan first because I know you haven't done true alternate history, but you've done cousin I've genres. I've done secret history. You've done secret history. You've also done historical fantasy. Um, and so my big question is, how much do you worry about getting the thoughts, mannerisms, and actions of the historical people right when you're writing a story like this? Um, I preface this by saying, you know, when I write epic fantasy, I generally am not trying to write, this is my mode, people who acted and thought like people did in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Um, I get away from this because I'm writing secondary world fantasies, generally with um, magical technology that would really place people more post-Renaissance um, yeah. and things like that. But really, they're thinking more along, if not, you know, contemporary, modern lines yeah. Yeah, for no. thought process. How much do you worry about this? Oh, I actually... Oh, I'm sorry. No, Dan, no. We'll go to Dan first and we'll... Um, um, sure. I, I love this question because I actually got into kind of a big ongoing argument with my editor and copy editor on my Cold War book, um, which by the time this airs will already be out. It's called Ghost Station. Uh, straight historical, not alternate or anything. Uh, set in 1961, and part of the plot hinges on the inherent sexism of the era. That there are two different places where people miss obvious clues because they assume that the bad guy is a man. Um, which is not to say that the bad guy is not a man, but 
I'm trying to do this without spoilers. Anyway, that sexism was important. And the editor and the copy editor were both trying to impose more modern sensibilities on this and changing just kind of some of the minor language in a place where I would say, man, they would want to change it to person. And just in a couple of places saying, you know, we kind of want to be more sensitive about this. And if it was in narrative, I let it slide. But if it was ever in dialogue, I'm like, no. The fact that this person has this attitude, the plot hinges on it. We have to keep that attitude there. Um, and so it, it does matter. And I, I think if you're using it on purpose to tell a particular story, you want to have those old attitudes and you want to have those older, kind of more antiquated personalities. Mm. If you're not, then sure, go ahead, because obviously it's a hot-button issue if everyone who worked on the book kept trying to change it. I know that um, when I read Doomsday Book by Connie Willis, like the way that she made people feel, I don't know, I'm not an expert in that period, but they felt like they were from the period, mm -hmm. um, really was a big selling point for the book for me. Eric, do you, how, how much do you worry about it's, this? Oh, you worry about a lot. I mean, it's... Uh it's kind of at the center of what you do because if the book isn't historically plausible, it's not going to work as a story. And and you have to realize that, that people in the past did not necessarily think the same way or behave the same way they do today. Um, there are various ways that I have found to deal. And, and by the way, the issue that you involve on a purely practical level is that if your audience is so repelled by your heroes, it's awfully hard to sell a book. Mm -hmm. um, and to give any, unless it was written 2,500 years ago, then people will give it a pass. But to give an instance, the, the Odyssey, the hero Odysseus, the very first thing he does after Troy, they're sailing down, he says, oh, there's a village there, and they stop, rob, and plunder it, and you know, these are the good guys. Okay, um, there are two. There are several things you can do. One of them is that it, if you introduce a time terrible element and people from the our time, right. then at least you got a binocular view of what's happening. So you can be depicting the attitudes of people of time, but you're also depicting how modern people are looking at it. And the other is to pick an historical period. Part of the reason I picked the Thirty Years' War is that that world was not that different from ours. It was different, but it wasn't like ancient Greece uh, or, or Ming China. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that different. And the same was true even more so with the series I'm doing set in Jacksonian America. And then what I did was went looking for the right character. I needed a Southern character, an effective political leader, Whose, whose attitudes would be at least okay with the modern audience. And I was lucky because such a person actually existed, and that was Sam Houston. Um, Sam Houston's attitudes on race were not the same as modern people, but awfully close. Um, he was partly raised by Cherokee, so he's very friendly to Indians. And he was asked once by Alex de Tocqueville what he thought about the capabilities of different races in North America. And he said, well, there's no question the Indians are equal to whites. He said, blacks are considered to be childish, childlike, and inferior. He says, but 
Nobody ever gives them a chance to do anything, so you know how, how can you really know what they're capable of or not? And that's an attitude that a modern audience, okay, they can go with that. Um, and then I picked the other major character as a Northern Irish radical of the time, and, and, and he's not exactly got modern attitudes, but they're a lot closer. It's a real issue, though. Right. I mean, because you have to do it in a way that's going to be plausible all the way around. And uh, so far, I've been able to pull it off. But um, there are some area, there are some areas of history I would just stay away from. Right. I, I Probably would. good advice there. Well, um, unless I could put a time travel thing right. on it. But other than that, <laughs> I just stay away from. We are out of time. Yeah. Um, I want to thank our audience at SpikeCon. Um, and I want to thank Eric. Do you have, by chance, a writing prompt you can give to our audience? A writing prompt? Yes. Yeah. Um, when you're writing, takes a lot of intellectual and emotional energy. It really does, and it's hard to get started beginning of the day, wherever that day may be for you. And I found two things help. I plot ahead of time, which I strongly recommend because one advantage to having a well-developed plot is I don't have to sit down in the morning and say, gee, what am I going to write about today? I can look at a damn plot and see, okay, here's where I am. But the second thing is just write. Write a sentence. Just, just you know, get a sentence down on paper and keep writing. If it turns out that sentence didn't work right, you can always scrap it later. But start writing because... Once you do that, you've kind of gotten into the story. The story itself will tend to pull you into it, but it really is kind of hard to do it. It's, it's kind of like jumping into a pool of ice-cold water, you know? It's, it's like the only way to do it is just do it. Well, That's about, you know, that's what I do every day. Thanks for the advice. Mm -hmm. um, this has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production. Jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.